Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And on your screen right now is a thumbnail for a video that we did a while back called GigaLeak is Nintendo's Past Gaming's Future. And if you aren't familiar with this, this is about a series of leaks that happened to the Nintendo company that revealed a whole lot of background information on their operations, on the way they developed their games, and on much, much more. Well, a couple of days ago, a certain document leaked out, was posted on various forums like Reset Era, NeoGAF, on Twitter, on social media, and was linked to me by a number of folks. Thank you to everybody that linked it to me. Too many to give individualized hat tips to on this. But that talked about what Nintendo had been doing or proposed to be done in the face of one particular hacking attempt or hacker in question. And a lot of people reacted very, very negatively to this. And there's some understandable reasons why. But I, as a corporate lawyer who has dealt with entities that have been trying to figure out where there are holes in their data protection, where there might be corporate espionage, people working against them in some fashion, feel like I do have some insight to talk to you all about with respect to what is happening here. What what is happening that makes sense to me, whether it's legal, whether it's ethical, maybe where I wouldn't make the same choices. Uh, but overall, in the articles that I saw on this topic, I've pulled up a Tech Raptor article entitled, Nintendo Leak Reveals Extreme Measures Taken to Track Hackers. I've been finding that there is an over-breathlessness and excitement about this particular document, either because people just haven't contemplated what these entities are generally doing and allowed to do in the face of things like hacking, what we might call technological circumvention uh, of the measures that they put in place on their hardware or software to prevent folks from getting inside them, and what Nintendo has chosen to do here. So I want to talk to you all about it because it's interesting and because I think maybe if we talk through what's happened, what they propose to happen, we can see that it isn't that unusual for an entity that wants to protect access uh, to its hardware and software. Now, a couple of things here that are a bit unusual for virtual legality. One, because this is a set of leaked documents of a high level of sensitivity, we're definitely allowed to talk about them as fair use. We're going to comment on them and they are newsworthy in and of themselves, but I won't be linking them separately. I won't be linking the main document. I won't be linking these Twitter threads. You can find them if you are looking for them. But just in the interest of full disclosure, I don't want to link those as part of the comments to this video. That's a little unusual here in virtual legality. But if you are interested in looking at the documents themselves, you can look at them. Now, as I said, these documents were revealed by Eclipse at Eclipse underscore TT on Twitter, who has been doing this GigaLeak kind of disclosure fairly regularly throughout the year. And they all talk about the use by Nintendo of what amounts to a surveillance team. What you think of as an FBI stakeout, if you regularly watch television or movies, all put against a single hacker that was hacking their 3DS portable hardware system. Now, I'm not showing the top of this document. The top of this document has things like the personal information of the hacker. This is public. Again, I don't think it's violative of most rules, regulations, YouTube rules, whatever it might be, but I don't want to walk up to that line. It's not useful for the conversation we want to have anyway. So this document talks about a recommendation that Nintendo of America 
was effectively making to Nintendo proper, the parent company, what they call NCL here, and working with their anti-piracy team, their APT, you might see here referenced, in order to talk about how this particular hacker should be handled. They start out by saying, Nintendo has been monitoring the internet for 3DS hacking attempts since the 3DS launch in March 2011. This document appears to be from about 2013. Nintendo of America's anti-piracy team, the NOAAPT, uses the Internet Crimes Group, Inc., a company, to observe hacker communications and record pertinent information regarding hacker exploits. So they've hired out as a service a group, an entity that is effectively internet private investigators that follow you on Reset Era or NeoGAF or on deeper parts of the web where you might be talking about the exploits that you are making, the hacks that you've achieved with their hardware. And one thing I want to say is while this undoubtedly seems invasive to people who are hearing for it for the first time and undoubtedly might rub some people the wrong way, it makes an awful lot of sense for businesses that are involved in the creation of new technology, hardware, software, what have you. The internet is generally available, generally publicly posted information, and it makes a lot of sense to go try to protect the assets that you are developing out there in the marketplace by hiring a vendor of some sort to just go and watch these places and see if anything pops up. Nimod, the hacker in question under this entire document, has made the most significant progress in hacking the 3DS. He claims full control of kernel mode, ARM 9 and ARM 11. He achieved this exploit via manipulation of a specific 3DS game card unknown game, information we don't have, uses a custom field programmable array to interact with the 3DS memory bus and learn 3DS operations to find and test his exploit, and involves a corrupted SD card save file used in conjunction with that game card. The hacker has not released the exploit yet, and he believes Nintendo could quickly fix it via NUP, a Nintendo update to their hardware. However, his and the group's knowledge of 3DS is expanding each day, and therefore, according to Nintendo of America, urgent action is recommended before any public release of their exploits, before this can get out. This could significantly harm our hardware in the marketplace. So we are sending this report and recommendation in an effort to decide what we are going to do about this. The other thing I want to add before we dive into what their proposal actually is here and talking about the background that they have on this particular hacker is that regardless of what you think about Nintendo's strategy and tactics here, one thing that is enormously educational and informational is the fact that this document is out there at all. This is the kind of thing that rarely happens, especially in high-level corporations. You don't usually see reports like this distributed out to folks because these are under the highest level of confidentiality, the highest level of NDA. Certainly Nintendo didn't want this to get out there. None of the companies involved wanted this to get out there, which is why we're taking the special steps of not linking these documents as part of this video. But it is very useful for folks to understand that when you have a corporation or an entity that's trying to protect its intellectual property on the other side, these are the kinds of meetings and plans that 100% are taking place. They are. Nintendo is not unusual in this regard. And in my career as a corporate lawyer, I have dealt with private investigators. I have seen companies hire them, use private investigation firms like ICG, and otherwise go out there and try to understand the world around them better so that they can identify threats and potentially quote-unquote neutralize them. Not in the sense of a spy drama or a movie of that ilk where you go into a clandestine meeting and someone comes out dead, but to actually go and figure out 
what could potentially be offered to this person, what this person might respond to in terms of threats. And you will see both of those things as part of this document. Continuing on, they have key investigative findings. And I think, honestly, this section alone is where people really react the strongest. So they know an absolute ton about this guy. They know his name. They know where he lives. They know he's a computer programmer and a hardware architect. They know that he's won certain awards from the government and from other entities. They know how old he is. They know what city he lives in. They know that he spends his evenings and weekends primarily at home. They don't show friends or visitors entering or leaving the residence. And they note that he only ever went to the bank and restaurant alone, which outside of presenting a a fairly solitary picture suggests a whole lot about the level of surveillance that Nintendo was putting on this guy before this report can even be made. Right? You're talking about stakeouts. You're talking about people in cars with binoculars. You're talking about people following him from his house to his restaurant to his bank to his work and back again for a long period of time. You don't get to say evenings and weekends are primarily spent at home unless you know what happens on most evenings and weekends. And I think people rightly recoil at that kind of notion, right? Think of cyberpunk and think of Nintendo out there with private investigators and a car watching doorways and seeing when a single individual moves about the city that he calls home. And I think that all makes a lot of sense on an individual basis and on a personal basis that you would recoil. But when we start talking about legality, one of the things we really have to think about is whether or not what is being described here is a violation of not just how you feel about it, what we might consider ethics, but the laws. And unfortunately, I have to tell you, they aren't generally going to be illegal. Now, I don't pretend to know much about Belgium law or French law or anything else that might apply in this circumstance. But as a general rule, private investigators and really anybody that's out there in the world that's trying to keep track of information are allowed to be in public thoroughfares, public spaces, and look for people entering and exiting those public spaces and thoroughfares. You don't see reference here to things that would be potentially illegal. You don't see reference to what he does in his home or what he does at his work or what he did in the restaurant or bank even. You just get references to him walking between these various places, how nobody went into the house that was being surveilled, etc., etc. Now, different jurisdictions are going to have different private investigator rules, but I've pulled up a website, Private Investigator EDU, which probably shouldn't be putting up stuff on the internet that looks really closely aligned with legal advice. But if you're thinking about being a private investigator, of course, virtual legality is not legal advice, and this is just for informational purposes only. And the advice that they give seems basically right, as far as I understand it, as to how these folks operate. And again, I'm not a licensed private investigator. As long as you're on public property, not breaking any loitering laws, and in some states, PIs may be exempt from these types of ordinances, you can sit around on a surveillance job as long as strong coffee can keep you going. And in most states, the venerable practice of the trash hit is legal. If your target has pitched evidence in the trash bin and put it out on the curb, that means they don't care about it anymore. It's abandoned property. Maybe you do. This is what private investigators do. If you've ever been involved in a lawsuit, it's very similar to the role of a process server. My wife once got very, very, very agitated when I was served process for a lawsuit that my law firm was named in, and they sat in our driveway waiting for me to come home so that they could serve me with process. Now, fortunately, the firm I was at, general counsel took care of it, and we read them the riot act. That's not really how you're supposed to handle law firms being attached to these kinds of suits, but... As anybody can know, having somebody out there watching you or even the notion that somebody is, 
is intimidating in and of itself. And you can use legal rights to intimidate in a manner that is at bare minimum ethically dubious, if not crossing that ethical line. And I think that's what people generally react to. Similarly to the, the surveillance kind of concept, the stakeout, eavesdropping. If you want to slide yourself into the booth next to the cheating husband you're tailing at his mistress at the local diner to see what you can learn, that's legal, but don't record these things. And we talk about recording and consent laws all the time here in virtual legality. But the point is basically, if you're out and about in a public space and your target is out and about in a public space, you can mostly watch what they're doing, compile this information. And if you're working for them, turn over that information to a corporation that's very interested in trying to figure out the psychology of this person. Now, why are they interested so much in this psychology? It's because they are trying to figure out what to do about what they think is a legitimate threat to the security of their hardware. So they itemize this. They say, hey, what could we do? What are the things that we could threaten? So they start with legal sticks. They're going to counterpose sticks and carrots. Here are the legal sticks. We could ask for a criminal filing. We could, we could file a criminal complaint. What you might think of if you watch TV on these things as pressing charges. We talk in virtual legality about the fact that governments actually do criminal convictions, that prosecutors decide whether or not somebody could potentially go to jail. That remains true here, but a private actor can go and file a criminal complaint. They can go and tell the government, hey, this guy is circumventing my security. This guy is stealing my intellectual property. This guy is engaged in corporate sabotage and all these various other things that they say, right? They say the strongest claims we could potentially put in a complaint like this is hacking, reusing data, owning hacking tools, concealment of data, system sabotage, the tools for that system sabotage, and the one that is the most likely to win here in the United States, the circumvention of technological protection measures. That's part of that DMCA that you know and you love that made illegal the action of trying to circumvent a security feature that an intellectual property holder puts on their copyrighted material. So they have these options and you can see how they could be built into a criminal complaint that they would tell the government is something that they should pursue. The government would still have the option of pursuing it or not, but you can also see how leverage works, right? One of the things we talked about in a very recent video was the notion of felony streaming and how what's either going to be crammed through the omnibus appropriations bill here in the United States or not, depending on what President Trump does on any given day, doesn't really change the quality of what could happen to a streamer that engages in infringement. They could still, right now, be thrown in jail for a misdemeanor crime, but it changes the quantity. And it could be a felony. It could be three years or five years or 10 years. And it gives leverage to private actors, the Nintendos, the Disneys, the Warner Brothers of the world, to be able to go and have a conversation like this one with another number on this list. Right? They aren't in charge of throwing you in jail. They aren't in charge of charging you with a criminal offense, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony. But they can craft a corporate complaint and they can be party to that complaint. Right? The next bullet here says Nintendo registers itself as a damaged party to really add emphasis to the complaint. Of course, presuming that the prosecutor would see it through. And if you've got more and more bullets, more and more numbers to add to this list, the more leverage you have if you potentially want to use the stick option. And you can see here how they think through these issues. Okay, if we did that, if we added ourselves to a complaint, why would that be useful? Well, we could withdraw it at any time. 
if if Neymar were to change his mind after refusing to cease hacking activity, we could say that's something we could give you. But it's worth noting, as I highlighted in red here, that prosecutors could opt to continue the case even if Nintendo doesn't support the proceeding any longer, right? Once we uncork this genie, we can't put it back in the bottle because why? We're not in charge of criminal proceedings. We aren't the government yet. And so we have this circumstance where Nintendo says, well, this is what we could get out of it, but do we want to get that out of it? If Nintendo files as a civil party to the criminal proceeding, this allows Nintendo access to the case file, updates, defense console comments. We can be a party to the case and keep track of this guy. Prosecutors may be positively influenced by our quote-unquote passion for enforcing our intellectual property rights, or IPR as they put it here, and consider the case more seriously. Hey, if we join the complaint, it might be the case that we can actually get them to take it up because if we don't, we aren't going to actually be treating it seriously. And do they actually want to prosecute one of their own citizens for a reason like this? They also note a criminal indictment carries with it a heightened sense of seriousness, stigma, and attention that Neymar would likely want to avoid. Yeah, most people generally want to be invo- avoid being on a criminal indictment, especially one backed by one of the larger video game companies in the world. And also, he may worry that a criminal prosecution could negatively impact his relations with the local government that awarded him a grant. Hey, governments don't tend to like it if you are a criminal and they gave you a grant, you were otherwise in their good graces. And so Nintendo says, hey, we've got this criminal complaint we could potentially threaten him with it. That's our sticks. Now, what are the carrots? In case we want to go a different direction, again, we're evaluating his psychology. We'll see as part of this form document what he says, what direction he goes in in the conversation is something we game plan out because this is high value for us, high stakes for us, but we could go stick, we could go carrots, and we have to be flexible as to what direction we go. We have to prep in advance. Carrots potential opportunities and avoidance of legal action. Hey, we've got opportunities to collaborate with Nintendo. First, one opportunity to collaborate is we can refrain from filing a complaint that he's a criminal. That is a kind of collaboration, but perhaps a little tongue-in-cheek in this context. Also, we could offer him a bounty contract in which, effectively, he goes in on our behalf and tries to exploit loopholes and tries to get into our hardware. And if he finds something, he gets money from us rather than street cred or distribution or going on the internet with those things that could hurt us. We essentially buy him out and incorporate him into our best practices. You have seen this story played out time and time again since really the invention of the internet and networking and hacking and computers, where you've got stories of really good quote-unquote black hat type hackers becoming defenders of the corporations and say, hey, he's really good at exploiting our engineering loopholes. Let's just bring him in to fix them before they go out. And that makes an eminent amount of sense from the corporate standpoint. The problem is, if there is any, is that you get too many of these carrots out here from the corporate perspective. A lot of people are incentivized to try to break into your stuff if they know you're handing out awards for succeeding in doing so. Now, ultimately, that might ultimately secure your hardware at the end of the day, but it is kind of a balancing act to decide exactly when punishment makes sense and when reward makes sense. They say, hey, if you're concerned, Nintendo, he'd be in a black box environment. He won't get confidential information, so he can't leak it out to anybody. And by the way, Nintendo, 
You could potentially help your public image by looking modern and tech savvy while hinting that hackers should be cooperative rather than aggressive with Nintendo in the future. So, hey, maybe you could make a carrot really work for you because sure, they might be inclined to try to break into your next hardware, but instead of distributing it out to various corners of the web, they'd show it to you first and say, hey, wouldn't you like to pay me for this like you've paid that last hacker you talked to? All could work, but it depends on a lot of guesswork. Within the parameters of an NDA, And in a Nintendo-approved statement, Neymod may also announce his success in finding exploits or vulnerabilities after Nintendo feels that the exploits have been fixed. Bragging rights are a key motivating factor for most hackers, perhaps as valuable as the bounty reward because of the boost to his reputation. Now, note what they aren't actually tying when they say these things, right? This could be a generalized list of potential carrots. They aren't tying this to the observations they've made about this particular hacker. They're describing this as just most hackers. This isn't actually as useful as you might want in making this decision if you are Nintendo or Nintendo of America. You want to be able to say this guy responds to reputational benefits. This guy responds to monetary benefits. You want to be able to analyze these things if you are making this decision. I actually think it suggests that their surveillance as uh, icky as it might make folks feel on the internet isn't as oppressive as you might see in other corporate contexts. And unfortunately, I can't share a lot of the details with you because of attorney-client privilege on those kinds of things. But suffice it to say, the right investigative company that's looking at somebody that could potentially harm that entity's interests can find out a lot about a person and start to make what you might consider a kind of profile on that person as to what they think might succeed better and might fail when approached with these kinds of opportunities. So you say, okay, sticks make more sense for this guy. Opportunities make more sense for this guy, those carrots, but not this carrot, that carrot, because he doesn't care about money. He cares about reputation. And you get into all these various things. Each and every corporation, entity, and a lot of individuals, if I'm being honest, especially high net worth individuals, are making determinations along these lines all the time. Now, they might not write an eight-page document that gives a flowchart of possibilities for what'll work and what won't work. This is a little bit more in-depth than even I usually see. But the actual thought process is happening day in and day out at all of these corporations. And you can decide, hey, that's unacceptable. I hate that, Rick. That's fully within your rights. But one of my jobs here is to talk to you about what is actually happening out there, what I see, and why you see stories happening the way that you do. They continue by saying Nintendo may engage him to research, reproduce, and then document or outrun other hackers' exploits. If he succeeds, it would provide Nintendo with valuable advanced knowledge. We could use him to attack other hackers. We could use him to actually enter into a lengthy employment agreement. If everybody's working out, you see nerd there reference, that's Nintendo Europe. Collaboration could start on security topics, but his apparent intellect and hardware expertise could benefit us in the long run if all parties consent. One of the things that comes across in this document, which I don't think is reported on a lot, is that Nintendo is actually referring to this particular hacker in a manner that suggests that they're pretty darn impressed by what he's able to do, that he's able to get into these access points on the 3DS and that they think he might be useful to them because he is so smart and gifted at this engineering feat that he has accomplished. As a compliment, depending on the hacker's personal interests, again, they don't know this, possible gaming background or as a Nintendo fan, unique rare hardware items not sold on the market may be of great value to the hacker. I love this one, right? This is Nintendo saying, hey, by the way, uh, you're a video game company. Uh, You are a kind of rock star industry. This guy is hacking the 3DS probably because he likes Nintendo. So what if we paid him off in swag? 
It's one thing to pay somebody off in money. It's even one thing to pay them off in reputation. But if there were a one of a kind item or maybe even one of five of a kind, then wow, wouldn't that be impressive to a Nintendo fan? And to some honesty, as a, as a gaming guy myself, I understand that. It's just rare to see this kind of conceptually in a document or even a plan like this, primarily because most of my clients or anybody that I've ever worked with uh, don't necessarily have the ability to pay someone off in swag that could otherwise harm their interests. In the medium term, organizing a trip to Japan to meet NCL's hardware engineers may also represent a very attractive opportunity for the hacker who is young, independent, and ambitious hardware engineer. Now note, This one is actually stating what they believe about this particular individual, young, independent, and ambitious. We don't actually have the background in this document to suggest why they believe that to be the case about this individual, except presumably because of what he has already achieved. You have to be a certain amount of independent and ambitious to actually break in to the 3DS, and they might be attaching it solely to that, or there might be some extra surveillance which doesn't make itself known as part of this elaboration of carrots. Finally, we see Nintendo may work with Neymod to offer a bounty to any other prospective hackers via his own contacts or at other events. So the last carrot is you can recruit for us. So overall, it's, hey, we won't file a criminal complaint against you. We could pay you for finding stuff for us. We could give you bragging rights. You could try to attack other hackers and solve those problems for us. We could enter into a long-term, probably security-based relationship with you. We could give you swag or send you to Japan. Or you could recruit other hackers to help us do many of these same things ourselves. All carrots. But they don't quite know which will work. So they actually describe sticks and carrots. And then they game plan out what might happen. Proposal, team timeline, example, potential outcome. So what's important about this part of the document, and I think this goes misreported in a couple of places as well, is that this is a war game. This is game theory of what might happen. So they describe what they think might work best, how you would respond to those issues. There's also a document that shows a flowchart of the various yes, no, or responses that come out of these paragraphs. It is not a description of what happened. This is a document that was before any of this would have occurred and is the planning stages for a company that's deciding whether or not to pursue these goals. So they call this plan Knock and Talk or KT. Now, the first thing you see is they say it should be limited in number so as not to alarm or overwhelm the hacker. And this is an important point. A lot of this actually winds up sounding like the way I set up my negotiations or we talk to people uh, in my line of work. One of the things you want to avoid is the squadron of lawyers scenario when you're sitting on the opposite end of potentially a target company that you might want to buy, someone that you're negotiating a big contract with. It can often be intimidating in a manner that blocks everything up, doesn't get you what you want more. It just makes the other side completely close up. So this comment is correct in my estimation. You don't want to send a ton of people to talk to this person, uh, but then you see the, the actual team. So you got potentially two people from Europe, one person from America, local counsel, that's your lawyer, uh, an internet investigator, somebody watching the net, and a local investigator with a law enforcement uh, background, potentially to be the guy that has the, the heavy hand of the law on his behalf. So that's a lot of people. And we'll see later, it's not everybody that they would send to talk to him, but certainly on initial estimation, that's a lot of folks for something like this. And This is obviously a matter that Nintendo was willing to put a lot of resources in, even just in putting together this planning document, and if they went through with any of this at all, to actually pursuing these kinds of conversations. 
Now, so you get the itemized timeline here. They say on Monday, we're going to assemble at the local hotel to discuss plans, decide how we're going to approach this person, where we're going to talk to him at, whether it's home or work, offer a different place like a restaurant or a coffee shop. Then in the evening hours, we're going to game plan. What if we approached him as he arrives home or after he has entered, just after he has entered? And this is where you get the second part of the kind of intimidation and the, the stuff that folks, I think, are really responding negatively to. So... I've said as part of this video, I understand where Nintendo's coming from. I understand wanting to defend yourself uh, with these kinds of actions, being aware of who could potentially harm your hardware on the market. But I think where people are rightly coming out against this kind of behavior is, do they need to go to his home? Do they need to actually knock on his door a minute after he arrives and say, hey, we're Nintendo? And the answer to that is no. The answer to that is people have rightly said... The idea of this is what I would describe as a kind of shock and awe, whereas this is a hacker that is using a name online that is not his own name. He's doing these things uh, to hack a company's piece of hardware, and we can show up at your house. We know where you live. We know what your name is. We know when you arrive home from work. We can knock on your door and say, hi, we're from Nintendo. We'd like to talk. And regardless of what kind of tone you put on that, you can see here in the first bullet, Approach him in a friendly, non-threatening, professional, and courteous manner. Make introductions. Provide a business card. Now, it's important to note, they're not trying to lie about that. They want to present as Nintendo. This isn't something where they're pretending to be somebody else. We want to show you that we know who you are and can get to you at any time and can have this conversation when we want to have it and not when you do is a method of intimidation. So again, we're talking about ethics instead of legality because when we talk about legality, we're probably going to find, again, that this is generally okay, but it's not necessarily a behavior that I would back, and it's not necessarily a behavior that I think a lot of people online that are seeing a document like this would back up. We'll also see at the end of this video that it doesn't appear to be the way Nintendo generally operates in this field, or at least hasn't operated for some period of time. As part of this game planning, they say we knock on the door, we make introductions, we acknowledge his aptitude. We cite his stated intention of not facilitating piracy, which has two goals. One, it reminds this person that you said, hey, you didn't want to hurt us. You don't want to pirate our software. It also, of course, subliminally, or maybe a little bit more than subliminally, suggests, hey, we know what you said online in that forum post seven and a half months ago. We know what you did last summer, says Nintendo. And the hacker has to take that into account as part of this conversation. They relate their concerns that his release of a hack could really harm the company. Nintendo states its sincere interest in coming to some sort of mutually acceptable agreement. And maybe the draft criminal complaint may or may not be shown to him at this point, depending on his demeanor reaction and perceived interest in engaging in discussion. So this is game plan, but you see here in this third bullet, we don't really know how it's going to go. So we've got in our briefcase a potential criminal complaint. And if it looks like it's going in one direction or another that we don't like and he might be susceptible to it, you bring it out from your briefcase and say, hey, it would be a shame if we were forced to file this. And it would be a shame if anything were to happen to your grant, your relationship with the government, the relationship with your employer, et cetera, et cetera, as these things tend to get public uh, pretty quickly. And we'd be forced to answer questions on the filing here in Belgium. So what you've got here is Nintendo saying, we're going to arrive at your door. We're going to potentially threaten him. But at the end of the day, we don't want to. There's a lot in this document that suggests, ideally, they wouldn't have to get that far. 
At 6.40 p.m., they game plan out 10 minutes after the discussion starts that Nintendo reiterates its interest in discussions, advises him of a 12-hour window of opportunity if he wishes to discuss and avoid legal action. Again, you rattle the saber a little bit, and here's another kind of area where you see things that really look like a contract negotiation. This is one of the things that we do in our line of work. We give a limited window in order to respond, not only because you don't just want to be hanging out there with a possibility forever, but because putting a time frame on somebody enhances their ability to come to a decision. Now, if you make that too short, you might find yourself in trouble with a court that says you put them under undue duress or other things along those lines. 12 hours is probably okay. Again, I don't know Belgian law specifically, but you can see what they're trying to achieve. Act quickly or else we're going to have to file this criminal complaint. We want to do something nice with you, but we won't if you make us not to. NCL and NOA are updated as to status after the conversation. The internet investigators are put on full alert to detect any online discussion of the event. We start immediately going online to see if he talks to anybody on any of his forums or anywhere that we know where he goes in order to see what happens from that conversation. And again, it's all going to be public. It's all going to be something that's going to be publicly facing and that internet investigators can find and that they can find legally. The next morning, they say if he fails to contact us, we attempt to call him. If no contact, we disperse. And then Nintendo decides whether to file the legal action or not. Nintendo of America is prepared with a reactive PR statement and internal questions and answers should the criminal referral go in because it'll be made public. And that's the end of the overall story. We've either not filed or we have filed and we proceed and figure out what's going on. Another alternative is that he calls us back. He has interest in continuing a dialogue. We update Nintendo proper, and then we figure out what that looks like. And again, this is mostly legal. All right, do we get him to sign an NDA? Does he not agree to sign an NDA? Europe is involved in determining what a bounty program looks like. He might agree in principle to stop his hacking, but we might need further discussions to figure out a collaborative relationship at a later date. Or he refuses to immediately execute the settlement agreement. It emphasizes importance of confidentiality of discussions, encourages him to continue to communicate, and we go about our merry ways and potentially circle back around on all this. Or he just agrees. Neymar executes a settlement agreement based on the above, even though we say we don't have details on the collaborative relationship right now. Great, Nintendo loves this. You signed the document to settle and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, we'll definitely get back to you with terms that are going to be to your liking. Or you actually determine all of those terms in the room, you sign the settlement agreement, and counsel finalizes contracts right then and there. Final recommendation from Nintendo of America is that we do this knock and talk thing in the next month and a half. Nintendo of America will closely collaborate with Europe in preparation for the discussion and redefine the carrots if necessary. Nintendo of America will update Nintendo proper of any changes in intelligence or evidence, which in Nintendo of America or Europe's opinion could alter the outcome of the talk. Hey, if we find out one thing will work better or not, or if he just puts something online that says, I'm going to burn Nintendo to the ground, etc. Nintendo of America will finalize a draft bounty employment contract in advance. They'll actually spend legal time and resources to draft that contract in advance so that that can be reviewed and ready if necessary. And we will continue online and physical investigation. We'll continue to surveil him to monitor activity and prepare for a knock and talk discussion. So I, I think people are right to look at this and say, oh my God, Rick, I had no idea that companies could do things like that. I think if you break it down and you come to it from their perspective, you can see why they do. And you can also simultaneously see why people would object, why it looks wrong, why it makes feel 
makes people feel certain things about both the company and about this avenue uh, of processing. But the legal questions remain, right? Private investigators, as we talked about as part of this video, probably okay. As long as they're maintaining public access, they're not pretending to be police officers. They're not uh, pretending to be the target in question and going and getting confidential information. Generally speaking, private investigators, there is a job that most countries and jurisdictions uh, allow. So this surveillance, at least as described here, doesn't really uh, turn the needle one way or the other. Other people might come to me, and this is one of the reasons that this was linked, and say, hey, isn't this blackmail? Isn't this extortion? Aren't you effectively saying what he is doing is potentially illegal, but you're threatening him with a lawsuit that would break him, and you don't know whether he would win or not, right? You look at this list, and I said, well, okay, hacking laws and data use and system sabotage that really didn't happen. These are all kinds of things that could potentially be a problem, and certainly in any given jurisdiction, they could be a problem. Circumvention of technological protection measures is a clear copyright issue here in the United States, uh, but it's one of those things where you say, okay, can they actually threaten you with a lawsuit and you have to stop doing something that might well be legal if you were to go all the way to the end of that lawsuit, they can threaten you and ask you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise want to do. Isn't that extortative? Somebody might bring up something like the United States Hobbs Act, which says, if you obstruct, delay, or affect commerce by robbery or extortion, you shall be illegal. It'll be fined under this title or in prison. And this comes up a lot when somebody threatens a lawsuit. Isn't that a really, really bad thing? But lawsuits are an interesting kind of animal because threatening a lawsuit is effectively telling somebody that you seek to avail yourself of the justice process, win or lose. And in general, threatening a lawsuit, as long as it isn't completely out of bounds, completely ridiculous on its face, is not going to be something that is viewed as extortative. Pulled up a direct TV case here from New York uh, that talks about this a little bit. As the Southern District of New York observed in an action where a plaintiff alleged a violation of the Hobbs Act, that's the act we just read, threats of litigation and even threats of meritless litigation or the actual pursuit of such litigation have been held not to constitute acts of extortion. I'm sure some of you will have the alarm bells ring with meritless litigation. Even if it doesn't make any sense at all, that isn't extortative. You start to get real close to the line there. The filing of a meritless lawsuit or administrative action, even if for the purpose of harassment, does not involve a threat of force, violence, or fear. To prove extortion under the Hobbs Act, a plaintiff would have to show wrongful means and a wrongful objective. Extortion requires an intent to obtain that which in justice and equity the party is not entitled to receive. And you might say in the case of a meritless lawsuit that you're not entitled to, to receive the justice at the end of that lawsuit. In fact, you won't receive it if you bring it. That's what meritless would mean in that context. But the actual right to bring the suit in a first instance is what's being discussed, not your ultimate right to receive justice at the end of it. So you can threaten a lawsuit and not be extorting under the U.S. law. I don't know Belgium. I don't know European Union law. There might be other things that you could trip if you're Nintendo. And certainly they have counsel after counsel after counsel and outside counsel to help advise them of these kinds of things. But as a general rule, if you've got a case that you could probably make, and if somebody is hacking your hardware, it would tend to be the case that you can bring something, then you are allowed to threaten to bring that action or to file a criminal complaint under the Belgian criminal code and to ask for something in exchange for not doing that. 
to treat your refraining from filing that complaint as one of the carrots that you give to this individual. So it doesn't look good, but it's probably not illegal. Does that make it ethical? No. One of the things we've talked about on this channel is that what is legal is not always right. And what is right is not always legal is the counterposition there. And we can get into those conversations on a philosophical, legal, and ethical basis at some time. Maybe we'll do a live stream. But at the end of the day, you can judge this for the actions that they have taken without them needing to have acted illegally if you are so inclined to do so. And in fact, that's one of the things that Hector Martin, who is apparently another person that kind of had a similar situation with Nintendo, started talking about on Twitter immediately after this document was released. He starts his thread as story time. I did some pen testing and advising work for Nintendo after they approached me in 2015. This was professional work on a freelance consulting basis. That NDA has expired. I won't talk about project details, but let's talk about how that went. I was able to accomplish some smaller goals and give advice on direction, but I sadly wasn't able to have high impact because the environment didn't allow me to. The leaked documents show some of these same problems internal to Nintendo. They paint a story of a large multinational with communication focus and trust issues across cultures and teams, which is sadly common. You do see as part of those documents, Nintendo of America telling Nintendo proper to do things under advisement with Nintendo Europe. And certainly there appears to be some cross collaboration and definitely trust issues internally to the corporation in general. Now he says, remember corporations are made of people and those people are often trying to do good. People make mistakes, people try to do good, people try to do evil, and ultimately corporations are combinations of those things. I agree. It's the corporate structure and the people in specific positions that end up making things go wrong. Now, what about the quote-unquote stalking? Now, again, stalking is a word you see online here. It's not stalking. It's not intended specifically to cause harm. It's not intended to threaten to kill anybody. You can get into federal law that talks about infliction of emotional distress, but in general, private investigators, investigation of folks is going to be something that's allowed. If you think about these entities as if they were that divorcing couple that you saw referenced in that PI educational website where the PI sits in the booth and listens to the husband and his mistress, this is the same exact thing except one side is a corporation and private investigation has always been allowed in order for individuals and corporations to go and find out that information as long as it's publicly available. It says, well, way back in the Wii days, they were using these similar tactics. After Bushing tried to responsibly disclose an issue, Jody Daughtery, former director and lawyer at Nintendo of America, tracked down his work phone and called him as an intimidatory tactic, intimidation tactic. At the end of the day, that's exactly right. That reference is proper, right? You, you call the person up because you know you can find them. You know you can call them. You know they, can, they will respond to it being Nintendo General Counsel calling them. But it's still not outside of bounds. You could still call them. It's still anybody's right to go and say, we know what you did. We could potentially sue you. Stop it. It doesn't make it right. But it also doesn't make it surveilling you on a stakeout outside your home. So it's a little bit six and one half dozen of the other. Now, he talks about the fact that he can bring this up at all. He says, hey, they contacted me by email. It wasn't a stakeout. This isn't the kind of thing that has happened to me. So I'm going to defend Nintendo a little bit. But why can I talk about this all at all? He says, if you're ever offered an NDA, it isn't an end user license agreement. You get to negotiate the terms. The only reason I can talk about this now is that I insisted on the expiry date and clauses that designate info I had prior and info published through no fault of my own, i.e. this leak, as out of scope. And any good lawyer would do that for you. But note what I just said. Any good lawyer would. When we talk about this stuff, note how much legal stuff is happening. 
You've got potential criminal complaints. You've got an NDA that they reference as potentially being signed. You've got a bounty contract with terms that have to be signed. Potential employment agreements, other agreements that all matter from a legal perspective. So the one thing I would say, and I don't give legal advice to individuals here on this channel because that would be unethical and the bar in the state of Michigan wouldn't like it, is that in general, when you are faced with a document that you need to sign your name to and that will give you rights as well as obligations, you probably need counsel to look that over for you. And if some other party isn't willing to give you the time to have your counsel look it over, assume that that document is exactly the kind of document that you do need counsel to look over. The changes here that Hector Martin uh, itemizes here with respect to his NDA are exactly the kind of things that I would change. You want to have exclusions to the defined term confidential or proprietary, whatever else the document is using that says, hey, if this stuff gets public, I'm no longer bound to you. You don't get extra rights to hold me back once everybody knows this information that I get to reveal this stuff after three, five or seven years and not indeterminately for your benefit. Those kinds of things are the things we talk about when we look at NDAs, sure, but any other contract. And if you're looking at something like a bounty contract, you wind up getting into all sorts of terms. What do I have to do? When do I have to do it? What do I get paid? When do I get paid? All these various things that you really do need somebody that's a commercial contracts lawyer to look at for you. And certainly Nintendo doesn't necessarily want that. They've got the 12-hour window. They've got the one-week window. But at the end of the day, Everybody that's facing these kinds of circumstances, whether you're a hacker that's been approached by Nintendo who's sticking out your Belgian home or somebody maybe a little less dramatic when you're faced with contracts and these timelines from anybody, even a prospective employer that you love, it's always worthwhile to have those documents reviewed. So at the end of the day, here in Virtual Legality, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We've got a circumstance where you've got a company that looks very much for a lot of the internet like it's acting outside of bounds. I will tell you that they're acting in a way that I have seen very often with entities, corporations, ones that you might love, ones that you might hate, uh, because there really is a vested interest in trying to protect their assets, their goodwill out there on the internet and elsewhere. It's not at all unusual. Nintendo is not unique in taking these steps. What is unique is the level of detail that they put in this document and that the document, of course, got out to the public at all. If you have your own thoughts about how much you hate Nintendo now or what you think I said rightly or wrongly, please leave them as comments to this video. I'd love to have that conversation. I'd love to see what you all think about the Nintendo ninjas and everything else that people have framed in response to this document. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.